Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, here we go. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I am the host, Brady Huggett, and the guest today is Tom Maniitis. So Tom is a founder of a relatively new biotech company called Calliope. He uh, runs his lab at Columbia. He has founded other companies such as Acceleron. He has done research at Cold Spring Harbor, at Caltech, at Harvard, Vanderbilt, and and beyond. Um, you know, in, in talking with Tom, the, the thing that always comes to mind when I when I think about these podcasts is how interesting they are. And I hate to use that word because it's it's such a bland word. I mean, interesting feels like it could mean anything. But when you know, we're we are talking in essence about his life, and it covered World War II. It covered the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam. It covered the moratorium on recombinant DNA research at Cambridge, and plenty more. So uh, I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy it. I'll have more to say. On the backside of this, but for now, here's your first rounders podcast with Tom Maniitis. So, um, you're talking about returning back up to Columbia today. How, how long have you been in Columbia now? Six years. Do you consider New York kind of your home? <laughs> no, you know, I was uh, at Harvard for over 35 years. And so I. Uh, I'm really new to New York and uh-huh. uh, Columbia. But you, I noticed you're also a co-founder of the New York Genome Center. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've, I have spent a lot of my professional time in New York, even though I was in Boston. I, I have served on the Rockefeller Committee of Scientific Affairs for, I don't know, it must be close to 15 years. Yeah. Uh, I was on the Sloan Kettering Board uh, for quite a while. I was on the Cold Spring Harbor <laughs> Uh, board of Trustees, and uh, and also I have very close friends uh, at Columbia. But you were always in and out of the city, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. But where did you grow up? You grew up in in um, Colorado, in Denver. Oh, in Denver. Yeah. Okay. What was that? What was that like? Well, you know, my uh, my father was a fireman, uh-huh. uh, and uh, the. He went away f- actually for World War II. He was in the South Pacific. And so uh, we lived uh, a few years in San Francisco. My mother took my sister and I t- there while he was away. Uh, and then we came back. He was a career fireman. And uh, actually, no one in my family really had gone to college. And, uh, and by a series of 
sort of improbable events, I ended up uh, going to the University of Colorado. Well, two, two things. Do you know what your father did in the war? Yeah, he was uh, he was on a destroyer uh-huh. in the South Pacific. So he was naval. Yeah, and uh, his job, uh, their job, was to shield the fleet from kamikazes at the time. And so he he was actually the first uh, among the first fleet to uh, go into uh, Okinawa uh-huh. and. Uh, he had some amazing photographs of uh, being the first uh, uh, group ashore at, uh, I, I can't remember whether it's Nagasaki or Hiroshima, right after the bomb. And, uh, and so he, uh, he had, uh, I think he was there almost four years. It was really a, a long uh, service. Yeah. Do you remember him coming and going? You know, I don't. I was, you know, I was born in 1943. He went away shortly right, okay. uh, uh, before that, and then uh, and really did not come back until the end of the war. Okay, and at which point you were at, I don't know, three or four or yeah, something? Yeah, right. okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so what were these um, improbable events that led you to college? <clears throat> well, I'd say the first thing is that uh, I was lucky enough to have an extraordinary chemistry teacher in high school. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I wasn't the usual sort of scientific career-oriented person that had a chemistry set in their basement and blew up the house and so <laughs> on like everybody else. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, d- I really wasn't interested in science, mainly because I wasn't exposed to it. Uh-huh. But in high school, uh, as I say, I had a, an extraordinary chemistry teacher, and I got very excited and uh, I was, uh, I, I played basketball and I was on the track team and so on. And so the track team had a, the uh, state meet in Boulder. And that was the first time I'd ever really been at a university. Uh-huh. I, I really was uh, blown away by it. And uh, so this, it was actually too late to apply. Uh, <laughs> Because it was in the spring, uh, you, but uh, somehow I managed to do that through a college counselor, and so I ended up uh, as a freshman at the University of Colorado, and I majored. Back then, it was actually zoology uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and uh, and chemistry, and uh, while I was there, well, the, can I? Is yeah. it so, but um, you must have been a good track athlete if you were at the States? Well, you know, I, I mean, was, relatively, right? Yeah, I was, <laughs> I, I was average. You know, I did, I, I did well, you know, well enough to compete in the, in the state meet, but I certainly didn't win you didn't, anything. You didn't come home with ribbons all <laughs> over your chest. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you said, you mentioned that chemistry, uh, you know, turned you on in a way. Do you, do you remember what it was that you found exciting? Well, I, what I found exciting was the, um, the in- intricacy and the way you could actually build on knowledge. And I think for the same reason, uh, I became very excited about organic chemistry uh, as an undergraduate. In fact, uh, I think I got the highest grade in the class because I was so excited. And so it was that experience in organic chemistry, the end of which uh, was on nucleic acids, uh-huh. that I really decided I wanted to do something in, in biology. You know, it... it, it it's, so you're saying that your high school grades were not very, not no, very good. You no. somehow 
almost through late admission you got into uh, University mm-hmm. of Colorado. Mm-hmm. But it, it, but by you getting those highest grades in organic chemistry, it sounds like the intelligence was there, obviously. You just needed the right thing to pull your interest along. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think it was part of the fact that uh, my family simply was not academically oriented. You know, there were... I, I have so many friends now whose childhood was reading books and yeah. listening to music and uh, very cultured upbringing, and I did not have that. I really was not exposed to any of that. Uh, and so when I had this opportunity, I, I felt really lucky. And, uh, and just, just by being on that campus, you thought, ah, this is for me. This is the place yeah. I want to go. Yeah. You didn't apply anywhere else. It was no. only going, yeah. No. And so... Uh, during my undergraduate experience there, it was transformative uh, personally and in the field in general. Uh, first of all, you know that was a time in which the genetic code was being cracked, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I can remember I had a a very interesting roommate who was also in biology, and we would uh, read papers and discuss them together and the new papers in science out of NIH on the code and so on. And when I was uh, a senior, and I actually I, I had uh, not really decided what I wanted to do, and so when I was a senior, I actually didn't have plans to do anything. And, uh, you mean after graduation? Yeah, you after just, graduation. You thought you were going to go home? Yeah, yeah. And did you? So what happened was that in the spring of that year, uh, the molecular biology of the gene was published uh, by Jim Watson, uh-huh. and uh, it just changed my life. I mean, I read this book, and I was uh, just, you know, uh, taken completely by it, the elegance and the simplicity. And, of course, that was the connection to organic chemistry and chemistry. Uh-huh. There yep. was all, you know, in fact, I think the first chapter is the chemistry of the cell or something like that. <clears throat> and so um, so I decided that I really wanted to do that. Uh, actually, I'm, and I was uh, very close to being drafted. So I'm, I managed with my undergraduate uh, advisor to get into the master's program at, at Colorado so I, I could uh, decide what to do. Uh-huh. It'd give me time. I was out of the draft. Uh, I, I, I was able to uh, start thinking about what I was going to do. And so, so I did this crazy project as a master's degree uh, in which I was taking, uh, I think it was one of the earliest ultraviolet lasers. And I was using this to selectively ablate uh, regions of the chick embryo, and then studying the consequences of that. <laughs> and anyway, it was a the laser was incredible because it was big as this room. Yeah. Uh, and it had uh, spark gap generators that generated the energy for the laser. And so when you turn it on, it would you know the flashing lights and everything would be going on. And so I that was a great experience because. Uh, it was on something that was completely new and different. Uh, it was uh, technology-based, and I've always been uh, interested in that aspect of uh-huh. things. And uh, and so I met um, while I was while I was an, uh, while I was doing the master's program. Uh, my advisor, whose name was Joseph Daniel, he was a embryologist. He worked on very early. Uh, 
embryonic stem cells in the rabbit. And he was a part of this group that moved from Chicago, uh, which, uh, in, which involved Leo Szilard, uh, Ted Puck. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, after the, after the war and the um, position that the physicists took on that, many of them abandoned physics to go into biology. And so this whole group moved to the University of Colorado Med- Medical School to found a biophysics department. And that was... Uh, Shortly after the war, so, let me ask you about that though. How, why was that related to the war? Be- because of um, oh, because these atomic these bomb. were the guys that developed the atomic bomb. I see. Leo Szilard was a key figure in that, and uh, you know there was a wave of uh, we despair. don't want to work in this field yeah. anymore. Yeah, ah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so Joe Daniel. Uh, was part of that group, and he knew, and, and I, I told him that I was very interested in molecular biology, uh, having to read that book and so on. And so he mentioned that one of his colleagues at the University of Colorado in Denver, Leonard Lerman, uh, was moving to Vanderbilt University to, a, I think it was the first department of molecular biology in the uh-huh. country. And actually, I, I learned after I got there that the, a person who was there for a few years uh, during the war was Max Delbrook. So before he went to Caltech, uh, he spent some time at Vanderbilt. That was the only place that would accept him. You know, he had the, you know, he was very close to the German phys- physics hierarchy. Ah, I see. You know? uh-huh. And so, anyway, so he was there, and that's what that was the seed that was planted for molecular biology by him, even though he wasn't there at the time. So Leonard gets you to Vanderbilt? Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea, you know, what this place was about, but uh, a one of the one of the great uh, aspects of it was that um, I could, they would accept, accept me mid-year, and no other place could. And actually, I really didn't... Uh, get accepted very many places because I didn't have a stellar academic uh, yeah. record. So I went to Vanderbilt. So, But my project was to try to understand um, how DNA is compacted. And uh, at that time, uh, almost nothing had been done on chromatin. Uh, the best example of compact DNA was in uh, bacteriophage heads. Uh-huh. Uh, but what Lerman did, because he was also a polymer chemist, is he he worked out conditions of using high concentrations of polyethylene glycol and cations to trigger the collapse of DNA into a very uh, a very tight uh, configuration. And so my project was to determine the structure of that DNA, and I did that by uh, wide-angle X-ray scattering. And I, uh, and I had a, a joint uh, advisor whose name was John Venable, who had just come from the MRC, worked on uh, X-ray diffraction of uh, ribosomes. Mm-hmm. And so I had these two, two guys, uh, and it was extraordinary. You know, I, I was doing some of the earliest uh, computational uh, analysis of DNA structures, uh, the computer, the computer there was uh, an entire building which has far less 
power than a in your Apple, iPhone. Yeah, than, exactly. Than my iPhone. Uh, but anyway, so it was it was a great experience because it took me uh, in a completely new direction. I mean, yet yet you excelled there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I did. I mean, were you surprised by that? Yeah. I mean, at some point, you know, as you mentioned, the grades weren't great. No one in your family had gone to college. Yet at every level, you know, you seem to be grasping things and, and advancing the, the thought lines yourself. I mean, at what point do you start to believe, oh, this is really, you know, I'm, I'm actually really, really good at this? Yeah, it was a long time. <laughs> you you <laughs> long, still wonder. Long actually. after that, yeah. So, so then what happened is that um, it was quite, quite funny. So I was, uh, I was finishing up my thesis, and uh, Mark Potashny visited Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. and he was giving uh, two lectures. Uh, one lecture was a political talk. Oh, I think I, he was in Vietnam, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, he, yeah, he was, he was teaching molecular biology during the height of the bombing in Hanoi. That's right, yeah. And uh, he was there uh, sponsored by this Quaker group. Uh, what were they called? The Friends of... I can't remember the name, but anyways... It was a, a very uh, prominent and active uh, anti-war group. And so uh, so Mark gave that talk, and then he gave the talk in the Repressor. And actually, I had, uh, I had become deeply interested in gene regulation, thinking about how chromatin is compacted and mm-hmm. expressed and so on. And uh, I had actually applied before Mark came uh, for a postdoc with uh, Wally Gilbert, and he actually never answered my <laughs> my my letter of request, uh, and uh, and so I, I I didn't really know uh, what I would do, and and so Mark came, and just by coincidence uh, we ended up sitting to eat w- with each other at dinner. He went out with the graduate students to some horrible. Chinese restaurant in Nashville. And so we started talking and we connected in an interesting way. And he asked me some really silly questions, which in retrospect are quite funny. He said, uh, do you know how to run a column? And I said, yes. <laughs> he said, are you interested in a postdoc? <laughs> and so it turned out that he was, you know, he was just starting his lab. Uh-huh. This was like two years after the Repressor was uh, was isolated, mm-hmm. and actually, I uh, and, and the funny thing is that so, I had, so, so the qualifications to join his lab was one that he liked you. You could <laughs> run a column, and you wanted a postdoc. Exactly. Yeah. This was not this was not a deep interview, right? Uh, but I should say that uh, that dinner was preceded by a lengthy discussion with Leonard Lerman uh, about me. Yeah, so he knew you were sharp. So, um, anyway, I, uh, after that, I mean, he almost instantly accepted me. Uh, I managed to get a NIH postdoctoral fellowship. And uh, I went to his lab uh, to study Repressor. Uh And at that time, there were only three people in his lab. I was his, I think I was his first postdoc. And... uh, they had at the time made this ob- observation uh, that, uh, in contrast to the lac operator, where there was a 35 base pair fragment, 
they, there was a much larger uh, piece of DNA that was protected from DNA's cleavage. And so he was mysterious, you know, he was curious, Mark was curious as to what that meant. And that was my project. And where's his lab? At Harvard. Right, okay. This is how you got to Harvard. All right. Yeah, right. So you're at Harvard. Um, yeah. So, so I, uh, I started working on this project. I spent the first three months in the library trying to learn as much as I could. And, and so uh, I did something obvious and straightforward, but it was technically very difficult. I took a uh, purified repressor that a graduate student had made. You know, of course, Mark had, Mark had uh, demonstrated the existence of the repressor mm-hmm. years, a few years early and actually had shown quite beautifully that it binds highly specifically to DNA and that mutations in the operator uh, would prevent that binding and so on. So a genetic and biochemical approach. And so, I mean, he, he had... Uh, he had gone from a junior fellow to full tenure, I think, in two years when he discovered the repressor. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so I think he was one of the youngest uh, uh, tenured faculty members uh, to be tenured at, at Harvard. So, so what I did is I started, I made large amounts of uniformly labeled uh, phage lambda DNA. Anyway, so it just happened that, you know, so I, I demonstrated that when you add repressor, uh, you see an increase uh, in the size of the protected region. And by using a primidine tract analysis, I could show that it was sequential. It bound to one place and then, they, and then the adjacent sites filled. But we wanted to uh, sequence uh, the DNA. And Mark had been. Uh, Mark went to a uh, to a meeting uh, to a Keystone meeting. Uh-huh. Uh, Those are early days of the Keystone conferences, and uh, ran into Fred Sanger. And Fred, at that time, was just developing the earliest uh, DNA sequencing methods. And so Mark, there's a f- famous story of Mark trapping Fred. Uh, on the ski lift, <laughs> you mean in the chair, in the chair, <laughs> and and basically beating him up until he agreed to let Mark come. And so Fred agreed uh, to let Mark come. And uh, what Mark didn't tell him is that he was going to bring me along. Ah, so this is how you got to the MRC. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so. Uh, so we show we show up in Cambridge, and Fred is shocked. You know, he thought he was going to give a little space to Mark, and he's got this postdoc in tow. And so there was a bit of a flap about what are we, what are we going to do, and so on. But Fred uh, is such was such an extraordinary man. I mean, probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. And so he put Mark. Uh, he gave him half of his tiny bench, uh-huh. and then he put me in a room of graduate students and postdocs. I think there were 12 people in this room. It was incredibly crowded. And I was sitting uh, next to Bart Burrell, who was the great genius in tRNA, tRNA sequencing mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, working class guy, didn't have a degree, but he was a genius at looking at patterns of spots on two, two-dimensional uh uh, photographs, and uh, 
And of course, he went on to become a major leader at the Sanger. You know, he ran a major yeah. operation uh, when the human genome was being sequenced. Yeah. So anyway, so I, I was there, and I, uh, I introduced this gel. They were kind of mucking around with some gels, and they, they really weren't uh, working well. So, uh, and I should say, at exactly the same time, uh, I was interacting closely with uh, Alan Maxim in Molly Gilbert's lab, and he was using these conditions as well. And so I was, I went, I think, twice back and forth from uh, Cambridge to Cambridge. Yeah. And uh, could see how the two labs were you know, we're developing their DNA sequencing methods. That was done at exactly the same side, completely simultaneously. And of course, uh, it, over the short run, the Maxim Gilbert sequence was the prominent method, it was used by everyone because it was easy. Mm-hmm. But then once automation came along, you know, the Sanger method completely displaced uh, Maxim Gilbert. Anyway, so. I managed to establish a really close relationship with Fred. Uh, he was like a poet. So the only people who worked late and on weekends were American postdocs and Fred Sanger. <laughs> and so, so I saw him a lot. And he actually offered me a position uh, when I was going to leave. And, and I, you know, I, I seriously thought about it. But uh, You were there a year. Yeah. And I have, have to say, it was not... You know, it wasn't, as you say, my cup of tea. I, I didn't think I wanted to be there long term. So back to Harvard. Yeah, so back, well, I should say we, you know, we sequenced the operator when we were there. Uh, it was one of the earliest, perhaps the earliest uh, sequence done. And, uh, and then when I got back to Harvard, I continued sequencing, and I sequenced the entire uh, rightward and leftward promoters, and demonstrated clearly that that there were uh, symmetric DNA binding domains that um, that were filled sequentially, and of course that laid the groundwork for the next 15 years of beautiful work from Mark Potashny's lab and showing how the genetic switch works, and uh, that was you know just extraordinary work. So I finished that and. And another reason for emphasizing this crazy uh, gel method is that uh, word spread among postdocs of this great method for determining uh, DNA size. And there was a guy who was uh, a graduate student, although much older than most graduate students, in Fotis Kafatis's lab. His name was Argeris Efstradiatis. And uh, he was trying to make uh, cDNA probes for chorion messenger RNAs. That's what Kafato studied, was the, the sequential expression of various chorion genes during the development of silk moth. And so he came up and said, you know, I, I'm trying to work out conditions for making long transcripts, and I, I don't know what the sizes are, so I have no idea whether I'm succeeding or not. And I heard you had this method for determining. And so we started that collaboration, which then uh, continued for the next several years. And so, 
we then collaborated on making these uh, full-length cDNAs. At about that time, uh, Hognes had published the first uh, oligo-DADT tailing of eukaryotic uh, DNA, Drosophila mm -hmm. fragments. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to have a go at uh, making and cloning double-stranded cDNAs. And so we did that, and and I, it was there were two other uh, labs that were working on this at the time. At the time, uh, one was uh, Rougeon's lab at uh, in Europe, and uh, Terry Rabbit's at the MRC. In each of those cases, they produced very uh, small DNA fragments uh, of globin, and from the beginning, our goal, because of this whole thing about making these long transcripts, was to clone full-length cDNAs. And so uh, we worked very closely together to establish conditions for making both strands. And at the time, it turned out that reverse transcriptase, when it re reached the end of the template, would flip over and, and go back uh, and sequence, uh, synthesize the second strand. Mm -hmm. and, and then uh, we worked out uh, methods for using S1 nuclease, which is a single-strand specific DNAs, to clip the end and make a duplex. And amazingly enough, we were able to make a full-length uh, DNA copy, double-stranded, of globin. And then we used um, oligo-DT to clone that piece. The problem is that between the synthesis of the full-length DNA and being able to clone it, uh, the Cambridge moratorium on recombinant DNA occurred. Right. This is 1980 or something like no, that? No. No, uh, before that? 1976. Oh, okay. Right. So this is a moratorium on cloning DNA, recombinant DNA. DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, I... Uh, so this shuts down yeah. your work completely. Well, yeah, what, completely. I mean, what did you, yeah. what did you do? Well, see, here I was... I, I had, against everyone's advice, accepted a junior faculty position at Harvard. Well, why is that against everyone's advice? Oh, uh, they said you're never going to get tenure. You never go back to the same place where you've been. You're just going to be a technician and blah, blah, blah. Well, did you, you didn't agree with that, obviously. No. Yeah. Well, I had a number of really attractive offers. And at that time, that department was extraordinary the molecular biology department mm -hmm. at Harvard, Jim Watson, Jim Wong, Mark Potashny, Wally Gilbert, Conrad Block, uh, Don Wiley, Steve Harrison. <laughs> it was extraordinary. And there was a, a culture there that was very different than any place I'd been, a culture of intensity and uh, engagement. Collegial? People, people, well, collegial, but in, in, in a way that probably wouldn't be seen as collegial by most these days. Uh, people really went after each other, hmm. you know. Th there was really a premium put on clear thinking. And it got pretty brutal at times. And so there, it was kind of right on the edge. And I think that was in part, you know, a legacy of the, uh, of the early phage days when Max Delbrook and Jim Watson and infam infamously 
attack people, you know, at, at meetings and so on. But there was a small enough group that no one took it usually, no one took it personally, and so it was a, a, a positive force. That's so fascinating to me. I mean, I, I just, you know, this concept of um, a collection of highly motivated, highly intelligent people, um, you know, cutting each other down, but but almost with a purpose, right? I mean, oh, yeah. it did help drive people to, oh, to, to new heights. It did. So, anyway, so I, I agreed, you know, agreed to do that. Uh, I, I was having space renovated and starting my postdoc, and the whole thing blew up on recombinant DNA. And I could go on for hours talking about the characters that got involved in that. It was an extraordinary time of uh, crossing lines between politics and science, in a, in actually in a very negative way. The scientific community became split, uh, and and I have to say that the opposition was so politically motivated that it affected their arguments in a political way. And I could give you some examples of that, but well, uh, can you can you give me one? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you one. So um, when I had uh, when I was working on the compact DNA in phage with Lerman. Uh, John, uh, Jonathan Jonathan King, who was a great phage geneticist that was the the student in Bill Wood's lab that worked out this beautiful assembly pathway for phage, T, for T-even phage. And so we became friends. We had this common interest in you know, how DNA is compacted and so on. And when I, and I saw him a few times, so that was when I was at Vanderbilt, and I saw him a few times in Boston. And uh, he was a key member of the group Science for the People. And they had uh, come to the fore uh, during the Vietnam era and really uh, opposed Agent Orange, use of biological weapons, and so on. And the basic theme was uh, stopping the use of technology for evil purposes, uh-huh. you know. And when the war ended, and actually Meselson, interestingly, was far more effective in ending uh, chemical warfare than these guys, because Meselson, and he's, that's a whole different story, I mean, he was... He was extremely effective because what he did was not to oppose the military, military on the basis of war crimes or war crimes or anything else. What he did is that he learned enough about what they do, why they were being used, what the military strategy was. He even went to war college for a while. Uh, that he was then assigned. He was a, a uh, an advisor to the Defense Department to Vietnam to determine the the uh, efficacy of the Agent Orange program, defoliation program. And so he, and at that time, there were arguments that uh, the South Vietnamese were feeding North Vietnamese troops by growing rice, and they would come in and they would... And secondly, that there was a whole theory about opening up large stretches of 
jungle so that you couldn't be uh, ambushed. Those are kind of the two military. Those are the, the lines of thought. Yeah, and he proved both of them wrong. First of all, he flew over all of Vietnam and helicopters during the height of the war and uh, calculated how much acreage there was and concluded that there was only enough acreage, uh, acreage to feed the South Vietnamese people. And it later turned out that all of the rice was coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and that uh, the whole point of a guerrilla warfare is that you don't take food and money from the people who are, you know, are giving you <laughs> a place to live and function. Right. And then, and then he completely disproved the whole idea that it was uh, militarily effective to clear large regions. In fact, it made it even worse because it made it possible to, to do raids and not get hit because you have a much wider range to... And he did all that, <laughs> and so, so That's he. That's crazy. So he just went inside the machine in order yeah, to uh, exactly. stop it. Wow, exactly. And so, he, so he, uh, and, and so that's an interesting contrast. So you have, you know, these these people who are, you know, deeply engaged in protest and uh, and so on, and and I think it is fair to say that they basically accomplished nothing. You know, they they I think they they gave the uh, general populace the uh, information that this was really a bad thing yeah. and so on, but it, it it did not have an effect ultimately on policy, whereas Meselson's deep analysis and careful, uh, well-planned research, yeah, quite frankly, research, yeah. Yeah. research. The one thing it did do was pause everything for uh, many years, right? Four yeah. years. Uh, two, uh, it was. It had the problem is that it was only for two years, but. The the momentum was stopped dead, and so it took it much longer to. And did to funding dry up too? Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so what happened is that uh, you know I'll never forget these uh, these uh, sessions at the Cambridge City Council, and I'll I'll mention one about Jonathan King, which is the one that I was alluding to early. So, uh, Jonathan King was appearing before he was a part of the. Uh, science for the people and was basically claiming in front of the mayor that these organisms would accumulate in the sewage system in Cambridge and the mayor said is this going to lead to a plague <laughs> and, and, and Jonathan said no I wouldn't call it a plague I would call it slow death there will be a gradual decrease in the general health of the Cambridge. You know, it's just complete nonsense. What, when he says organisms, what was he? What was he referring bacteria. to? Bacteria, oh, recombinant oh. bacteria. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. All right. So, so, so I, uh, I confronted him after. I said, John, how could you? How could you say that? And he said, he looked at me in this really sort of condescending way and said, Tom. When you're fighting a political battle, you use political strategies. I said, oh, so it's okay to use your scientific credibility to uh, accomplish your political objectives. And he didn't answer, walked off, and that was it. <laughs> anyway, so what happened is that here it was, starting a junior faculty member. Uh, we, we, ha we had 
all of the means of, of making full-length cDNA clones. And this is before anything else was published. We had to sit there. We couldn't do anything. And so Jim Watson called me up. He had heard what was going on. So I said, why don't you come to Cold Spring Harbor? So, so I moved. he left. He left Harvard. Well, he was leaving in this transition period. He was doing. He was in both places for some period okay. of time, and then it became clear that that Harvard was not happy with that, and he had to make a decision and, and he did. Uh, went went to Cold Spring Harbor. So he asked me down, and uh, I ended up at Cold Spring Harbor for almost two years, I think. But so, and you were also doing the. You were still at Harvard and at Cold yeah. Spring. You're just. I had a joint meeting. appointment. I, okay. had, I was a junior faculty member at Harvard and a staff scientist at uh, Cold Spring Harbor. And, and can I ask you? Um, you know, had you started a family? Were you married? Yes, Did you, I was you had... married, and uh, I had a infant at the time. Your first, your first child. The first child. Yeah. yeah. And so we all moved down to Cold Spring Harbor, and and the. The debate and the controversy continued, but uh, with uh, sort of minimal resources and space, we managed to clone, characterize, sequence the first uh, full-length cDNA clone. It was Globin. It was the first time that a complete messenger RNA had been sequenced because we could do it. And... um, and so it, it was kind of it was both a proof proof of principle and and told us a lot about uh, the nature of messenger RNAs with five prime non coding regions mm-hmm. and poly A sites and so on. So, um, so then during that period, you know, I, I was I I had a, a tiny little room because there just wasn't any space left at Cold Spring Harbor, and and I think I had. Five or six people packed in there, and and there was uh, a lot of traffic uh, between Cambridge and there because Wally Gilbert was uh, starting to uh, clone insulin, and uh, the person who did that, uh, Nadia Rosenthal and Via Komarov, uh, were coming to my lab from Cambridge, and so it was crowded, and and so uh, one of the strongest opponents, incredible opponents of recombinant DNA research was uh, Sensheimer at Caltech, Bob Sensheimer. Very uh, sort of elegant, uh, sophisticated man. And he was taken very seriously because he didn't resort to all this nonsense. Grandstanding. On what grounds was he opposed? So he was... I think he got a little confused. I think fundamentally he was philosophically concerned about the impact on human society and evolution and sort of saw it much further, but but joined the efforts of the overall thing. And so he was seen as the most credible yeah. uh, opponent. And so out of the blue... I was sitting in Cold Spring Harbor, and the phone rings. It was Bob Sensheimer. And he said, would you consider coming to Caltech? You know, and I th- it kind of shocked me. I thought, wait, this is the guy that's opposed. Yeah, opposed to my work, basically, yeah. 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 And, and uh, I said, well, I had to think about it, call him back. And I talked to my wife, and I called him back and said, yeah, I, I, can, I, I have no space here. It looks like I'm not going to be able to move back to Harvard. So, uh, 
So I went out and visited. Caltech was a fantastic place. And within, I think, two or three months after that phone call, I was at Caltech. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, Sinsheimer was then subjected to derision by the Cambridge opponents of recombinant DNA. George Wald, who was one of the strongest opponents, called him up and said, you've betrayed us. And I'll never forget what Sinsheimer said. He said, I have uh, one position as a private citizen and another as head of the department. And as head of the department, I have to hire the best people. <laughs> Brilliant, really, right? I, this yeah. is a complex man to yeah. come up with that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, 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 it turns out to be more complex when he got tangled in the in a, a resurgence of this thing in which the California legislature was going to pass uh, recombinant DNA restrictions that were far worse than in Boston. Yeah. And he was siding with the guy that was uh, pushing that. And uh, Norman Davidson, Eric Davidson, Lee Hood, and I confronted him. And he backed off. And I think he had too much of it. He, he, he hated controversy, hated yeah. public. And so he, he backed off and several months later resigned and became the chancellor of the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he did an amazing job you know, rebuilding that, uh, the academic program yeah. there. So can I ask you, that I've, I've heard that um, you know, to, to work and live at Cold Spring Harbor is um, isolating somewhat. Yeah. Back then, especially, the spouses were sort of, um, you know, just there's no school around it. It's oh, yeah. just a research lab. And yeah. and so was that part of your decision to go to Caltech? Yes. My wife was not happy there. Oh, okay. And okay. Uh, the, in general, you know, it's so claustrophobic and so close. It was then. I think now it's, it's changed. You know, so many people now live in nice places outside of the lab, and, and it has a a more normal atmosphere. But back then it was, you know, as uh, a person famously said that uh, made Jim Watson very angry that they referred to it as Camp Cancer. <laughs> Camp <And> Cancer? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I, I, I moved to Caltech and uh, so here I am, really, you know, two years out of a postdoc, and suddenly I have this lab at Caltech, and all these people came to me to move. You know, they, they were unhappy in one lab or the other, so on. So suddenly I had a big lab, and that became an extraordinary period because we uh, moved towards constructing genomic DNA libraries, and. As trivial as it seems today, back then it was a it was a serious technical challenge. Mm -hmm. None the least of which because the recombinant DNA restrictions were such that you had to use P3 conditions at that time to sequence human genomic DNA. And uh, anyway, so I had just a, an amazing collection of people there that uh, would take a long time to explain, but really extraordinarily smart and uh, unique characters. Well, there's, there's a, let me ask a couple of things, and I'm, I'm not sure if mm -hmm. I'm where I am in the timeline here, but also when you were, I think at Cold Spring Harbor, 
you uh, produce, you know, the Bible of, of cloning, right. as people call it. Um, was that, that was before, this is... Okay. I, I, no. No, that's no. yet to come still. Yeah. Okay. That's right. yet to come. So, anyway, so so we managed to do that, and, you know, we made, uh, we made a human, a rabbit, and a Drosophila library. And, and in each of these cases, they were deeply characterized with caught curves. We did everything we could to maximize the representation of the libraries. And I think it turned out to really be important. Uh, and so we published those at about the same time. And the Drosophila library then turned out to be the, the source for Drosophila genes over many years. You know, almost all the papers used, used, uh, on developmental genetics in Drosophila uh, refer to that library. But we used the human library to isolate the human globin gene cluster. And that made it possible then, and I think that was actually the first human gene to be cloned, mm -hmm. the human beta globin gene. And then uh, we worked out the linkage arrangement, walking along the chromosome to make that uh, linkage, and then used that to uh, study the genetic basis of thalassemia. And we were able to identify deletion breakpoints, mutations, and in fact, uh, I think it was the first uh, point mutations definitively shown to be splicing defects. So all that that happened in an amazing period, you know, just highly productive, exciting, and um, and then once again, Jim Watson called me and said, "Would you teach a course?" And molecular cloning at, at Cold Spring Harbor. And so I, th I was on study section. I had a lab. I was teaching undergraduates, et cetera. And I, I uh, to this day, don't know how I was able to do it. Well, how did you do it? Did you um, just fly back and forth constantly? Yeah. So, so, I, uh, so Ed Fritch, who was an extraordinary postdoc in my lab, uh, and I... Uh, wrote up all the protocols, we collected everything that was used in the lab, and, and at that time, basically all of the methods that ultimately turned to the manual, or at least a large fraction of them, were in, in our lab notebook, yep. many of which we developed. So anyway, so we put this together and uh, taught the course. It was a great success the first year, and, and actually one of our students was Bob Waterston, who... <laughs> who uh, went on to uh, genome sequencing fame. Uh, and, uh, and so then Jim approached me after the meeting and said, the course went so well, the notebook was so great, would you be willing to turn that into a manual? And, of course, that's the last thing I wanted to do. Well, why? Why didn't you want to do Because I was buried. You know, oh, it was time-wise, yeah. yeah. Okay. But then he said, and I told him that, I said, I just don't see how I can do this. And, and so he recruited Joe Sandbrook. And Joe Sandbrook at that time was director. But what we did, and I think ultimately became the real value of the manual, was to uh, preface every chapter on a particular method with the biology and historical background. So phage genetics, uh, restriction enzymes, and so on. And we did it in such a way that we hoped that it would allow uh, users to uh, troubleshoot. 
I see. Well, yeah, it didn't happen. And I've heard, I can't tell you how many times I've heard since that time that that was considered to be the real value of the manual, that people in India, people in China who had no access, they couldn't go down the hall and say, this is not working, how, do, how can I fix it, were able to fix it by the, uh, the way, from the way the manual was written. Ah, okay. And so... Uh, and so, obviously, it turned out to be a huge success there. Uh, I was involved in two volumes. Uh, I, I didn't continue uh, for the subsequent volumes, I, and mainly because I felt that uh, things had become so kit-oriented that the impact and the value of the manual had diminished significantly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Joe continued, and to this day, there's still a, you know, there's still a manual. Um, and so... Yeah, and, and at that time, I I think only Jim Watson really knew what impact it would have. Because, you know, I just thought, of course everybody's going to do this and they'll see protocols in, you know, in papers and so on. But in fact, what it allowed to happen was the promulgation of the technology worldwide in a way that I don't think would have happened uh, otherwise. Can we can we say uh, a few things about Jim Watson? I mean, he you know he is a um, scientific lion. He also his reputation is, let's say, complex to, to say the mm-hmm. least. But um, to you, he seems like he was a great mentor. He was. I mean, he he reached out to you again and again. Yeah, he was he was a uh, a mentor with great insight. You know, I, Jim has all of his quirky outward characteristics that people focus on. Yeah. But I think that uh, more than anyone I've ever met, he had a sense for good science. Uh, he understood important concepts before others did. He, I can't tell you how many times I'd be at a Cold Spring Harbor meeting and and be walking out of the thing and he would pinpoint exactly why this talk was important and and explain and you know very clearly why and he was just that way I think he he really grasped uh, science in a way that few people do and he had unusual ability to judge the quality of people he's always been surrounded by amazing people and uh, you know when he built Cold Spring Harbor it was from scratch and he managed to put just an extraordinary group of people together and became a dominant force in DNA tumor viruses at the time. It's, it's like he knew he, he could recognize good people but also understood the importance of gathering them together, you know, exactly. around him. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I should say, he, he's not somebody who sits in a lofty seat and manages from above. I can't tell you how many times, like at 11 o'clock at night, he would, ru- he would walk into my lab at Cold Spring Harbor and ask what's up, wanted to know what was going on. You know, he was... He's been, you know, sort of deeply involved at the at a personal level. Huh. Okay. Um, so I also want to touch on some of the industry side mm-hmm. here. Right. You founded the Genetics Institute in, in I think, nineteen eighty. Is that okay. right? Right. So what so what happened then? Um, I was subsequently contacted by both MIT and Harvard about moving back, <laughs> and and. Uh, that was obviously very difficult to think about, but this sounds crazy, but I was really having a hard time with a smog. In, it was uh, like in those, in those yeah. years, it was 
maximum. Yeah. And so I have a particular sensitivity to that. And I was constantly sick, constantly having nasal problems. And, and uh, it was really affecting me. And that and the general sense that life outside the lab is far more in- interesting in Boston than in Pasadena. So those two things and, you know, uh, family reasons and other things. So I ended up moving back. And, I, and, and that's still the one child. You know, how many children no, do you two. have? Two then. Yeah. Okay. Was your wife all right with moving back? Hmm? Was your wife okay with moving uh, back? No. No. I think that was that, that ultimately led to a, a problem. Uh, the anyway, so simultaneous to that, uh, Mark Potashny called and said that. He had been uh, contacted by some investors about a biotech company. And so uh, we started meeting about that, and and, uh, one thing led to another, and we co-founded the company, Mark and I. uh, And actually, it was funny. It was called Genetics Institute. And the reason why it had this formal name is that the recombinant DNA controversy had still not lifted from Cambridge and names like, you know, Genentech or whatever uh, still had a very negative tone. So this sounded more like a, you know, a research facility rather than yeah, a... Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then we, we were able to then uh, recruit and put together an extraordinary group of people that represented the latest and highest level of technology in gas phase protein sequencing, DNA synthesis, uh, cloning, uh, uh, expression in mammalian cells, expression in bacteria. It was amazing. We were able to put together people who uh, really turned down uh, offers at the best universities. And I think that's what really made Genetics Institute happen. And it was extraordinarily productive and successful. It gave us, um, let's see, blood factor 9 and 10. Uh, yeah, 8 and 9. Fa- factor yeah, eight, 8 and nine. factor 9. That's right. EPO. Uh, EPO. Uh, it, uh, it gave us uh, GMCSF, uh, bone morphogenic proteins, yep. all of which are still on the market. They're all FDA, FDA approved. And, and Wyeth, so, Wyeth bought it, eventually. Yeah, but yeah. In, in a, I'll, I'll tell you the story about that. But so, what, so what happened is that we got in a patent battle with Amgen over EPO. Yeah. And there's a long story, though. I don't have time to go through <laughs> But it went from court to court, you know, up, 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 until it reached the Supreme Court. And uh, a decision was made against us. And I can, I could tell you why I thought I think it was an unfair decision, but it's irrelevant. Um, and so that really forced. Here we had all of these products in the pipeline, uh, in uh, no income, and so uh, it really forced the the buyout. The sale. Yeah. Wyeth. It's uh, really unfortunate, and and I in you know in. Over and above what's fair and not, it was, in my view, a perfect example of the negative impact of 
patent decisions, that rather than the court deciding that these two companies had innovations in different aspects of this technology and should share and flourish, they decided to give all everything to one company. And the other, yeah, and, and it destroyed the Genetics Institute. When it was taken over by Wyeth, the people are scattered among yeah. their various... Yeah. It, you know, and when you, when you see what happened to Genentech and Roche, it was completely different uh, later. But anyway, I, I, I really thought that, that biotech, biomedical science would be far better off now if that uh, had been shared and that uh, Genetics Institute had emerged as a independent company, as did Amgen, Genentech, and Biogen. Yeah, yeah. So, well, anyway. You, you tried again, though. You had Acceleron. Yeah, well, before that, uh, almost 15 years, I was head of the scientific board on the board of directors uh, of Genetics Institute, and that was an extraordinary experience, uh, sitting on a board with Benno Schmidt as the head, Benno Schmidt Sr., who was just an amazing guy, so, sort of learning from these, you know, the, these great business minds, how how they do business mm-hmm. and so on, how they build companies and so on. Um, so then uh, I, uh, I co-founded a company that was kind of a re-co-found because it started off as a muscle company, but we had discovered in my lab. So what I had done at Harvard is really focused on the interferon gene as a system. We worked out uh, in great detail, the transcription factors that are activated in, during virus infection, how they assemble and enhance the soma and activate gene expression, and how the signaling pathway worked. And we were the first to show that the signaling pathway required the ubiquitin proteasome pathway. Mm-hmm. And that's where the sweet spot was, that understanding that if you could inhibit the proteasome, you could affect the NF-kappa-V pathway. And we showed that you know, using the early inhibitors. And so this company then uh, turned from a muscle company that was uh, refounded into a company that was, again, state-of-the-art in the ubiquitin proteasome pathway. Uh, Fred Goldberg uh, at Harvard was, you know, the discoverer of the proteasome. He was a co-founder as well as others and uh, hired a great medicinal chemist, uh, Jillian Adams, and uh, our first drug uh, was Velcade. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, the investors in this company uh, were concerned about toxicity, and they sold the company for almost nothing. To Millennium. Uh, to Millennium. Well, it, went, it was a two-step thing, but it went to Millennium. Yep. And of course, at Millennium, the entire Proscript crew moved to Millennium, and thanks to Julian Adams, uh, and a postdoc of mine that, that went to, went there, uh, Vito Palombella, uh, developed Velcade. And, of course, that became uh, the, the blockbuster for Millennium. For millennium. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 So then uh, when that was finished, uh, I was approached by two of the people we had hired early on uh, at Genetics Institute, uh, guy by the name of Jasper Sira and John Knopf to start a uh, TGF beta company. And the, the nature of the company is to make uh, ligand traps for various uh, TGF beta receptors and ligands. And in that, uh, you know, the company now has uh, 
three drugs in phase two, and one will go in phase three clinical trials in muscle, bone, blood, and it's you know it's, it's now a public company. And uh, what's the company? Hmm? What's the company? Acceleron. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, right, right. And uh, and so I'm still you know I've I've been on the board of directors and the head of the scientific board of that company from the beginning, and then uh, just uh, very recently. I co-founded a company in New York uh, with uh, Richard Axel yep. and Charles Zucker, and the technology really is out of Charles' lab, uh, uh, basically directed towards uh, the use of the blood-brain, the gut-brain access to develop drugs. So before we get to that, though, mm-hmm. so it, um, I'm not quite sure on the timing of this, but at some point... Uh, you began to focus on uh, ALS as a research right. area, yeah? And this is because of your sister. My sister died. Right. She was diagnosed at 50 and died three years later. I was approached by the ALS Association to uh, found a, uh, a new uh, advisory board that was made up of uh, basic scientists rather than clinicians. And that was a a big step for them because most of the work at that time, this is like you know, close to 15 years ago, uh-huh. was mostly clinicians. And I think this committee really had a big impact on shifting uh, research in ALS from a more descriptive uh, mode into, into a basic science mode. Uh, and it really, it really caught fire uh, when the genetics started, you know, we went from a single gene, uh, SOD1, uh, discovered by Bob Brown at the time in 1993, to almost 20 genes now that are now uh, merging into pathways and connections and leading to the uh, uh, really mechanistic studies of ALS disease mechanisms. So let me ask you about that. This, you know, there, there are diseases like that, like ALS, like Alzheimer's, like cancer um, that have been around so long with so little real progress that it's almost, you know, you almost begin to think that these things are unbeatable. Of course, they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are your feelings on the future of treating diseases like this, and how big of, how big will genetics be and eventually cracking it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in my view, uh, we're about to see a revolution in this. And ALS has presented a very uh, convincing tip of the iceberg. Uh, and this is uh, sort of a very personal thing for me because uh, in all of our interference studies, we are working out pathways of innate immunity, identifying the molecules involved. And when we started working on ALS, so I, for a number of years, I was just an advisory capacity, and and then about ten years ago, started actually doing research and. The approach we took there is really trying to understand the uh, transcriptional profiles of motor neurons, uh, microglia, astrocytes, uh, during disease progression in animal models and uh, in patient material. And what emerged from that is uh, a real indication that innate, innate immunity and autophagy uh, were characteristic features of in all these cases, and so 
two years ago, I was involved in a uh, collaboration with uh, David Goldstein and Rick Myers, uh, which was the largest uh, whole exome sequencing study of sporadic ALS. There were close to 3,000 uh, patients and 6,000 uh, controls. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, what emerged from that is the both the identification of a gene and the establishment of the of proof of principle of this approach of, of beginning to understand complex genetic diseases. The number one hit, and this was, you know, for me, uh, is one of those events that seems so improbable. The number one hit was TBK1, which is a ICAPA B like kinase that we had determined the function of in 2003. Uh, it is activated in response to viral infection or double-stranded RNA or DNA, and it phosphorylates a transcription factor IR3, which goes to the enhancer and so on. So that turned out to be the only new strong hit. And it turned out subsequently another group demonstrated that it was a, a prominent familial ALS gene uh, in, uh, in populations in southern Scandinavia and uh, in northern Germany. Mm -hmm. So it turns out then that TBK1 binds to and phosphorylates a protein called P62. Mutations in that gene cause ALS. It binds to and phosphorylates optineurin, which binds to and phosphorylates, (laughs) TBK1 binds to and phosphorylates VCP, Mm -hmm. which is also a target, and what emerged is that there, there are these, now, actually there's an additional gene that's important called ubiquitin 2. All of these are key components of autophagy, and that TBK1 lies at the interface of innate immunity and autophagy. And so suddenly, we have a real pathway that has biochemical parameters that you can actually study, and we've only scratched the surface. Because of the genetic studies in familial ALS, we, we, I think we now know 75 or 80% of the existing familial ALS genes, but we only know a few percent of sporadic. And that's because I believe that these mutations do not occur in isolation. So TBK1 is going to have missense variants and other genes in related pathways. And so what, what will emerge as we start th- sequencing tens or hundreds of thousands of sporadic ALS patients is filling in the map. And I think it's interesting that ALS was really sort of in the backwaters of uh, neurodegenerative disease uh, science uh-huh. and is now at the forefront because it's becoming the best characterized system. And it really provides an example, I think, of how other neurodegenerative diseases are going to be understood. These are very complex pathways yeah. that interact, interact and uh, it's the sum total of the genetic background and the mutation that uh, leads to the, to the disease. So I, I am, and you know, we recently uh, recruited David Goldstein to Columbia, and we have a great program uh, in ALS that that integrates the New York Genome Center, uh, Columbia, and uh, the Institute of Gene- Genomic Medicine at Columbia. So 
I, you know, I think that uh, I am more optimistic now of being able to understand the nature of these uh, uh, of these complex genetic diseases than we have ever before, and it it's all really been made possible by the transformation in technology and DNA yeah, sequencing. Yeah, yeah, It leads me to. I also want to ask you about this. Your new company, Calliope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. where, where is that located? It's located in the Alexandria Center, uh, East River. Right, East yeah. River next to NYU Medical School. And so what what do you see the future of New York City's life sciences sector being? Well, I you know, I think uh, it has great potential. Uh, there are serious problems that have to be resolved having to do with space, zoning, cost. Uh, but uh, it's turning out that it's becoming so expensive to do science in Kendall Square because of the massive... Uh, inflow of major pharmaceutical companies that New York is now in a comparably yeah, prized position. But, you know, but, but the challenge is going to be really space. And uh, Mark Tesse Levine, as you know, has worked tirelessly on this problem, and it's most unfortunate that he's leaving to become president of Stanford. But uh, during that uh, time has made much progress. And uh, so we have been, I've been part of this group, and we've been uh, talking to real estate developers, uh, to the mayor's office. Uh, we had a meeting at Rockefeller a few weeks ago to try to solve the problems that prevented New York from becoming uh, a biotech hub. And you know, when you look at the level of NIH funding, which is number two in the country for the uh, combined yeah, New York yeah. institutions, and all of the um, talent and patient base here. And uh, bankers. And bankers and philanthropists. Yep. Uh, New York Genome Center, as you know, came into existence almost entirely based on philanthropy. And it's off the ground. It's, it's thriving now. Mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of went through a period of uh, difficult growth, but it's really doing well. And so in that, you know... Uh, so when I co-founded that, uh, after arriving in New York, uh, I felt that uh, that's the way New York would succeed in a way that's different than Boston, is by bringing everyone into a center and uh, providing infrastructure and an intellectual framework that was consortium-based rather than you know individual institute-based. And the Broad has just been fantastic, I mean, beyond anybody's imagination of what they accomplished, but I think it's fair to say it's sort of an inside-out uh, organization with uh, Eric Lander being uh, the prevailing force, mm -hmm. whereas the New York Genome Center is evolving and is going to more so even these days into, a, into an outside-in uh, center where it's really... Everybody, and the reason why the New York Genome Center happened is that everyone uh, realized that this is su such a complicated problem that it was not going to be solved by individual institutions. It was only going to be through collaboration and consortium. And that goes everything from research to technology, and most importantly in the long run, is sharing data. And I think that's, yeah. that's where the real emphasis right now is it's not solved yet. You know, there are barriers having to do with, you know, decades-old 
ways that people did science in, in clinical medicine. Uh, but it's changing, and I think that, that uh, most uh, informed people are realizing that uh, they cannot succeed if they're not part of something bigger because it's just too, like the example I gave you with ALS. It's I mean, too big. That's got, you know, that's going to require enormous resources, collaboration, and interpretation that it's difficult for one, one institution or one lab to do. So you're, you're hopeful for New York then? Absolutely. I I, in fact, I, I think that uh, once we solve the uh, space problem, it's going to happen really fast. Huh. And I can tell you that there are discussions about buildings in space uh, near the new Columbia campus mm-hmm. in Manhattanville, uh, discussions about uh, more development around NYU and on the east side. Uh, there are areas uh, in the neighborhood of the New York Genome Center that uh, is now looking very interesting. So I think, you know, with the momentum behind it and, and the projection that people can see from what happened in Boston, yeah. that uh, this is going to happen in New York. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you maybe one final thing. You know, you're talking about your father and, and your mother, too, mm-hmm. for that matter, who had not been to college. And your father had been in the war and he was mm-hmm. a fireman. You know, then to have you go to college, not only go to college, but um, grad school and a postdoc and, mm-hmm. and do things that, um, y- you know, I mean, the things that you're describing mm-hmm. must have just seemed mind-blowing to him. Is that is that fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my mother, I have to say, <clears throat> is one of the smartest uh, people I've known. And she, she grew up on a farm in Missouri. Uh-huh. She had 12 siblings and somehow made her way to Denver during the Dust Bowl. And but uh, she was well informed, uh, bright, and uh, really encouraged me. I think that was a that was a critical part of my uh, my scientific development. Thanks for taking the train down, spending the time with okay. us. Well, thank you. There it is. That is your First Rounders podcast with Tom Maniitis. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music in this podcast. Uh, if you'd like more information, go to our blog, Trade Secrets. You can find that off the uh, homepage of Nature Biotechnology. I will put some links up to provide more information on Tom's background and some of the things that we discussed in this podcast. You may also reach us on our Twitter account. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Um, You can also post comments to the blog if you are inclined to do such a thing. What's next? I'll tell you. No, I won't tell you, but I will give you a hint. The next guest um, won a Nobel Prize, so that should hook you. Uh, That's it. Thank you, as always, for listening. I will talk to you later, and goodbye.